0: Well, good evening again, uh, listeners, and uh, thank you for joining us in Carmelite Conversations. I am joined again this week, as I am every week, by Francis Harry. Francis, how are you this evening?
1: Doing great. So glad to be here, and I'm looking forward to our topic tonight.
0: Well, we're launching into a new topic. We talked about this for a number of weeks, and of course I mentioned last week that we had some delays. Uh, but we are ready to begin with St. John of the Cross, and we're very excited about it. John is... Uh, often referred to as the Father of the Reformed Order of Carmel, much like uh, St. Teresa of Avila is referred to as the Mother of the Order. But before we begin, let us begin with prayer, as we do each week. Francis, would you lead us in an opening prayer, please?
1: Yes, and this comes from St. John of the Cross. So it's one of his prayers, and it's from the Book of the Dark Night. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Ah, my Lord and my God. How many go to you looking for their own consolation and gratification and desiring that you grant them favors and gifts, but those wanting to give you pleasure and something at a cost to themselves, setting aside their own interests, are few. What is lacking is not that you, O my God, desire to grant us favors again, but that we make use of them for your service alone, and thus oblige you to grant them to us continually. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: Well, before we begin, I want to go ahead and lay out a challenge for our listeners this evening, a question. Uh, For many of our listeners, I'm sure uh, that their experience with St. John of the Cross was much like Francis, our own, as we discussed uh, before the program began and have discussed many times, that at first... John is a little daunting. He can be a little overwhelming and, and difficult at times even to read. We're hoping that we can cut through some of the difficulty and reveal and open up and unpack the beauty of the message of St. John of the Cross. This evening, of course, we're just going to provide a brief bio, uh, biographical sketch and hope to introduce you to the person of St. John of the Cross, a little bit of the experiences he had in his life, a relatively short life for all that he accomplished, Uh, He was only in his early 50s when he passed away. I know I want to begin this evening with just a brief uh, uh, quote from 1 Kings. Uh, This is uh, chapter 19 and a couple of verses, 9, 11, and 13. And it sort of sets the table for what we want to talk about in the life of St. John of the Cross. When Elijah reached Horeb, the mountain of the Lord, he went into the cave and spent the night in it. Then he was told, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Then the Lord himself went by. There came a mighty wind, so strong it tore the mountains and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind came an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire there came a sound of a gentle breeze. And when Elijah heard this, he covered his face with his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Why
1: why did you pick that?
0: Well, I I was uh, hoping to present the image of John's entire life, and in large part, his life is written about in this very section of Kings. And I say that because John experienced all the turbulence of the earthquake and the fire, and, oh, and, uh, and 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 the the harshness of the wind, the mighty wind at the beginning of the reading. But John lived at the end of this reading. John lived in the gentle breeze, and as we take you through um, this program and and some of the specific details of John's life, you'll certainly be able to relate. Many of our listeners, our friends of Karma, will be able to relate. To the turbulent aspects of John's life. Uh, they'll live perhaps in a different time and under different circumstances. We've all had similar trials to what John uh, went through, but John learned apparently fairly early on in his life uh, to enter into the silence and to live in that gentle breeze of the Lord, and he's going to help us to discover that experience in
1: our own life. Well, I thought it was interesting that you picked this passage, because when you look at when John was born which was, um, they, think, they think yeah. it was, yes, 1542, but probably June 24th, which is the feast day of who? It is St. John the Baptist. And I thought, you know, remember when Jesus talks about um, the spirit of Elijah and mm-hmm. St. John the Baptist, and now we've got John the Cross, and I thought, oh, here John was probably named after John the Baptist since he was born on that day, yeah. is what we think. Um, So I just thought that was an important connection as well.
0: John is certainly a continuation of the prophetic message of Elijah, which we've talked about in this program before, and and also the uh, prophetic image of uh, John uh, the Baptist carrying forth the message and bringing uh, the image of Christ into the world where he where he uh, worked everywhere that he worked.
1: And I think the harshness that John the Baptist brought out, you know, repent, prepare the way of the Lord, you know, here at John of the Cross is doing the same kind of thing.
0: He is, only John did it differently. And in fact, I want to make this quick note, um, uh, which I found in some of the introductory material, and I thought interesting. John, unlike Teresa of Avila, John didn't really write his biography. John didn't write his the book of his life, if you will. Now, Teresa, of course, was commissioned to do this. Uh, And and we have been the beneficiaries of the great work that she did. But John didn't write about John's life. Most of the details we have about John's life come from Teresa and others who experienced John in in his teachings and in his spiritual direction and so forth. Uh, But John didn't write his life. For John, I think, his life genuinely was, his entire life, was hidden in Christ. And he saw his life through that prism, that everything that happened to him, there's a quote we'll read later on, where he talks about how all of the events of his life are seen for him through the prism of his relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to stress this one point with regard to John. If you are a person who has either sought or maybe be receiving uh, spiritual direction today, or you're only beginning this walk in Carmel or in other Uh, um, devotions or perhaps another order, I want to suggest that there is perhaps no better spiritual guide that you could look to than John of the Cross, and that's not to say that you should run out and buy his text. Um, Approach it uh, cautiously, as we'll suggest this evening with our experiences of it the first time, but ultimately I don't know that there are many uh, individuals in the history of the Church that I would advocate uh, uh, could be more uh, pertinent and, and beneficial to anybody who is seeking a more intimate relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ than the example and the writings of St. John of the Cross.
1: Right, and when I said the harshness before, uh, what I meant uh, and to imply there is that, you know, he cut to the chase. He got to the point, and he was not writing for the beginners on the spiritual journey. No, um, He was writing for those who are ardent, the, ardently, passionately pursuing this life of perfection and striving for this union with God. So uh, he, he's going to cut through all of the muddle, and that's what I just think is so wonderful.
0: Yeah, John is sometimes misinterpreted. Um, some of the the uh, counsel on detachment and the austerity of his own life and that which he counsels in his writings can be some, somewhat off-putting at times, but we have to keep this in mind. John was after the purest expression of, of love. John's entire teaching is about divine love. It is about purifying the heart and mind to make ourselves available for the purest form of love that we could ever experience, and that, of course, is the love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His model for that uh, was our Blessed Mother. In fact, that's one of the reasons we believe that he chose the Carmelite Order.
1: Absolutely. Uh, And
0: certainly one of the arguments that Teresa made uh, as we go through some of the biographical sketches, certainly one of the arguments that Teresa made to keep John in the order when he thought about leaving it for a time uh, was that he couldn't possibly conceive of leaving the order of Our Lady.
1: So here we have this great saint. We know he's a saint, St. John of the Cross. We know he is a Discalced Carmelite friar. We know that he was a mystic, and he wrote a lot of wonderful works that we'll be talking about in our uh, presentations or our discussions, um, and he had these nicknames, Doctor of Divine Love, Doctor Mysticus, or the Doctor of Mystical Theology, the Doctor of the Dark Knight, the, the one who's associated with nada, 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 nothing, nothing, nothing. So you've got all these titles, but if you, if you go past that and you look into his life, here he is, he is um, a mystic, a confessor, a spiritual director, a theologian. He was an artist, a poet.
0: Very accomplished in many, many regards, much like Teresa. Yeah,
1: an architect, administrator, nature lover, a manual laborer. He was a nurse. So let's get into his life. What do you say?
0: Well, let's cover just quickly some of the biographical uh, detail, John. As we said, we uh, believe that history writes he was born in 1542 in a town called Fontaveros, a small town of about 5,000. John's father, Gonzalo de Yepes, uh, Yepes of course being the town that he was from, was an accountant in the silk industry and also from a well-to-do and distinguished family. John was actually the third son of Gonzalo and a woman named Catalina Alvarez, a poor weaver woman from Medina del Campo, a small town uh, where her uh, future husband, uh, Gonzalo, used to transact business and he would occasionally go through Medina. Um, there is a wonderful story associated, and it's, it, it is pertinent, uh, Francis, and I'm going to have you tell it because I think you'll do a better job. But it is very significant in the formation of who uh, John Deeps, later John of the Cross, becomes. It's his exposure to his parents' own love story. And tell us a little bit about how that All happened. Right.
1: This is the Romeo and Juliet part, okay? The true love story of his parents, Gonzalo and Catalina. Both of them were orphans. Uh, His father was an orphan but lived with a rich uncle. His mother was an orphan who lived with a widow um, who uh, she boarded with. And Gonzalo fell in love with her, and yet he was supposed to marry, you know, one of his uncle's daughters. And, you know, thus inherit the family business and have wealth. But true love and nobility, this noble heart of his father. True nobility. Yes, true nobility, uh, came to the fore, and his love was pure, and he, he went against all everybody's recommendations, and he marries Catalina. And of course, the family disinherited, him, disinherited them, and um, when he dies, Catalina's got these three boys, and uh, so she struggles. But the thing here is that John has already seen and heard firsthand and through the family uh, learning about this great love and what true charity is.
0: Right, and we have to understand in the time that John grew up, we talked about the uh, um, association with a distinguished family and a name and and all that went with that, the wealth and the privilege. Of course, this is a time when poverty meant poverty. It meant drudgery and, and, and hard labor, and of course, uh, Gonzalo accepted that he was disinherited, as you say. He became himself a weaver, a very lowly task, and he did the very best he could to support his family, but uh, eventually succumbed through a uh, lengthy illness and, and, and the drudgery of his work uh, passing away when John was only two years old. And, of course, his mother now, Catalina, is left in, in sheer poverty. She goes to the family, by the way, of Gonzalo, um, and they turn her aside. Yeah, it, it was sort, sort of like...
1: Mary and Joseph going into uh, Bethlehem, and the door is being shut on their face. That's what right. I thought of. And then, of course, uh, she has trouble, and then the middle son dies of nutri- malnutrition. Yeah,
0: Louis, uh, the, the uh, second son, died of malnutrition, r- clearly uh, indicating the, the poverty and the difficulty of the life that they lived.
1: And, and- the uncle, another uncle, takes in Francisco, um, and Francisco,
0: the older Right, son, the older
1: right. one And then uh, while he's away at work uh, The aunt <laughs> uh, treats him more, more like a servant And really kind of abuses the relationship there It was a
0: difficult life for all yeah. of them Including, of course, Catalina
1: So he eventually comes back home to his mother and w- With John
0: Right They return to Medina uh, Medina de Campo, where John is eventually entered into a school for poor children. And
1: orphans, yeah. A Mm -hmm.
0: a school for for poor children, orphans, those who are, of course, not uh, capable of uh, of paying for a a proper education. But nonetheless, uh, he seems to blossom in this. He's selected by the priest in in, um, in that area as an acolyte, somebody who serves at the liturgy. Uh, And in this capacity, he spent... Uh, sometimes upwards of four hours a day in the sacristy, uh, uh, assisting both the priest and the sacristan. Uh, the local uh, hospital in Medina, of course, was run by a priest, a father, Alonzo Alvarez. And he noticed John's great compassion for, this, for the sick and enlisted John as a nurse and an alms collector in the hospital. And it is, isn't it interesting that here's a man, a young man now, of course, uh, early teens, um, who shows great promise, academic promise, and his own life is tragic in many ways, suffering the, the uh, trials of, uh, of poverty and so forth. But he's selected to work in the hospital because the priest sees this great compassion that John has for the poor, and, and the point i want to make is for so many of us we we face trials and tribulations and struggles in our life and we can react to those experiences in one of two ways we can allow it to turn us away and to embitter us and to harden our heart or we can choose the path that john chose which is to deepen our compassion our love and our capacity for reaching out to others rather than reflecting on our own conditions and that's the great message i think john demonstrates even this early in his life
1: And I also think that this was an example of a time when he could see firsthand the results of a disordered life. You know, this was a hospital where a lot of people with venereal disease were there, and, you know, there was a lot of mental illness probably. And so uh, the other thing that comes out is John's maternal side. And, of course, with his father dying when he was so young, of course he's going to have more of a maternal instinct. So his compassionate side is really nurtured and brought to the fore and so he's seeing, you know, these people in their great suffering, and he wants to alleviate that suffering. So here is this blossoming love, you know, continuing. The, the Romeo and Juliet story, you know, uh, does come together and produce even more love here.
0: And like Teresa, and I think, quite, quite frankly, like all the great saints, and it's a lesson for us, John's actions in and of themselves, his writings even, uh, as powerful as they are, are not the greatest witness of his uh, spirituality and and the sainthood that would later be identified. It's the very person himself. It is John transformed in love. He took the experiences of his life as difficult and and, uh, uh, as significant a trial as they were, and somehow, and he's going to explain to us how, so please stay with us, Somehow he was able to take these difficult times and transform them into love. He didn't let them, as I said before, weaken him or diminish him. They actually became the source of what transformed him into what I would characterize as a, a pillar of love. John was a right. pillar of love, and he manifests that in all the experiences that were going to uh, come into contact with him.
1: And there's another aspect with Francisco, his brother, who uh, kinda got wild and crazy there for a while, and then went through a conversion. And John witnesses all this, too, so that has to have an effect on him.
0: Well, John is uh, not only identified for his great compassion, but also for his uh, accomplishment in the classroom. He becomes a great student. Uh, Father Alonzo, who we mentioned a moment ago, also saw the great academic promise and made sure that John was able to continue his studies. and. Uh, literature and grammar and rhetoric, some of the grounding that he got for his later skills as a poet. When he finishes his studies in around 1563, John is offered a position as a chaplain in the hospital. Uh, Of course, he would have to continue his priestly studies, but uh, he's also pursued at this time by the Jesuits. But John chose to enter the novitiate of the Carmelites, and we believe, in, in in large measure because of his own writings, Uh, John's decision to join the Carmelites was prompted largely by his desire to pursue the contemplative uh, spirit of the Order, and also his devotion to the Blessed Mother.
1: And I have to add a story here. This is a little anecdote. I wonder how many of you listeners who know John of the Cross remember the story about him being saved twice, I believe, from being drowning um, there was a pond, and it, he was out there playing, and they were throwing things in it. And he reached in, and he falls in. And he goes to the bottom, and he comes up, and he goes down again. And he sees a, a beautiful hand reach out to him. And he is afraid to reach for that hand because his hand is so muddy. And then, of course, then a real person comes along. Uh, but he later in life, and it can be historically proven, tells another about this drowning uh possibility, and how he attributes that beautiful hand that reached for him was the hand of our Blessed Mother.
0: Well, that's a great story. You, you related that just before the program, and I had to confess I had not heard that before. But it does begin to show his devotion to the Blessed Mother, and that comes out, of course, later in his writings. Well, in 1564, John continued his studies at a major university in Spain in Salamanca. Now, Salamanca at that time was actually uh, a noted European university, on a par with the University of Paris, with Oxford, and all the other major academic institutions uh, throughout Europe.
1: Yeah, we got to remember, this is the golden age of Spain, and so there's a lot of wonderful cultural, historical, educational things that are thriving.
0: And, and John is, um, interestingly, uh, not particularly taken by the uh, the significance of the academic and the educational environment. He's He's more, again, consistent with his decision to join the Carmelite. Is yeah. <laughs> much more taken up with the contemplative spirit and the contemplative life. And he goes through a bit of a crisis of vocation here. He's a gifted student, um, and and when he graduates, he is given the opportunity to remain in the academic world, which many young people would choose, especially one with his gifts. But he chooses not to do that. He wants to pursue his vocation as a Carmelite. And so he goes on to... Uh, tell or I'm sorry, say his first mass in Medina del Campo, where he meets Teresa.
1: Yeah, now, a providential meeting. How providential! And he's he's only 25 now, and Teresa is 52, and she's just starting out on her venture of making new foundations of Discalced Carmelite nun.
0: And there's something interesting that John, uh, of course, many interesting things that he learns uh, from Teresa about Teresa. One of the things, and we've mentioned this before with regard to the program on Teresa, Teresa was a, a devotee, a, a big fan of the book by a Franciscan named Francisco de, Suna, uh, de Osuna called The Third Spiritual Alphabet, which was really her instruction manual on mental prayer and the beginnings of her uh, working in recollection. Of course, she'd been doing this for a number of years. And Teresa understood from uh, Deusuna that she had to enter that inmost dwelling place, that place of silence deep within her heart, where she would find God. This was the teaching of Francisco de Asuna. And she also knew that she wanted uh, the men that she would eventually choose as friars for the Reformed version of the uh, Carmelite order to be very intellectual. And so she uh, recognized both the contemplative spirit, the ability Uh, to enter into that deep uh, level of prayer in John, in addition to his uh, considerable academic uh, achievements. Uh, John, unfortunately, and Teresa talks about this more than John does, but they had some disconnects in terms of their individual perspectives on Uh, how uh, to advance the uh, Reformation of the Order. We're going to pick up on that story between Teresa and John as soon as we come back from the break. A reminder, you're listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. back, uh, Friends of Carmel, and we were talking about uh, the relationship between St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross, at times uh, a somewhat stormy relationship. You might expect that, Francis, with the difference in their ages. John was very academic. He was well-trained in philosophy and theology. Of course, he had schooled uh, at... um, uh, the graduate level, if you will, for his time. Teresa, much more practical, simple down to earth. But we were having an interesting conversation before the program began. And I said, if I were looking for a spiritual director, and I guess I should be very upfront and f- uh, fess up. Um, you know, when I was a young person, as we all do, I think I, I had my short list of heroes, whether they were sports heroes, political figures, military figures, what have you. Um, I, I will stay in the the middle part of my life now. Uh, I find that list is much shorter, but one of the members who has joined it and remains at the top of it for me, if you're looking for a spiritual hero, I don't know that you can find a better candidate than uh, St. John of the Cross. But I would also say St. John is brilliant in providing spiritual guidance, spiritual direction, and as we discussed uh, earlier, he is the one who can help us understand the path of what's happening to us in the spiritual life Teresa is much stronger in, in a different aspect
1: of it, Francis. Well, I think it's the difference between men and women. I think men are goal-oriented. They cut to the chase, and they know what they want, and they find the shortest way to get there, you know. You don't want to stop at that rest stop or that gift store. You know, you want to get to where you're headed. And Teresa was much more experiential, sharing her experiences and the trials and tribulations and the blessings. And, and John is like more methodology you know, and, you know, more into the purification and, and why this darkness, and, you know, Teresa doesn't talk about the darkness.
0: And John doesn't spend a lot of time on methodology in prayer. Right. Teresa, in fact, we, we agreed about this. If you wanted to find, uh, if you're beginning the process, or you wanted to deepen the process, and you want to know more about method in prayer, turn to Teresa. Absolutely. Teresa is a great uh, teacher in, in uh, that regard john on the other hand is telling us what's happening to us why are we going through these various phases what is it that takes us to the next phase and you're right uh, john's method is as ralph martin said one time I, and i thought this was a, a very fair characterization john is this straight up the mountain approach never right. mind the switchback path <laughs> nada, uh, nada, nada. Yeah, not, <laughs> nothing not,
1: nothing nothing
0: not the easy way he he is they're counseling you to go ahead and and uh, charge the mountain so to speak
1: but if you want to go the fast way you know this is the way <laughs> John
0: is John is giving you advice in that regard
1: isn't yeah. it funny it's sort of like Francis and Claire or is it what Benedict and Scholastica
0: well his sister right Scholastica, yeah, yeah. so
1: you, you have these pairs male mm-hmm. female mm-hmm. and, and it, it's I don't know I think that's kind of neat you yeah. know that that God does that with with you know pairs of things like I,
0: that. I, I think it's true. and of course, there are other examples of it, but uh, where he pairs um, uh, sort of the ideal a male teacher and 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 the female representative to make sure that he's balancing out the message in a particular uh, charism, whether it's the Franciscan or uh, St. Francis de Sales, of course at uh, uh, de Chantal Madame de Chantal yeah and 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 others. there are other examples yeah, of yeah,
1: I see John sort of like the the more the mind and a big heart, but you know, mind, you know, Mm -hmm. on top. And Teresa is is first heart and then mind. Yeah, (laughs) I think
0: that's true. I think that's uh, very
1: Very complimentary, sort of like Mark and Francis, (laughs) we hope, anyway. Yeah. (laughs) At least as far as a radio program. (laughs) I'm in that
0: league, but... Yeah,
1: you're the mind, I'll be the heart. (laughs) God help me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's pick up on our our, our biographical sketch. Just quickly, in uh, 1567... Uh, John's first assignment was in a little town called Duraello, and I know I'm mispronouncing that, Frances. Yeah, so please you forgive can, us the yeah,
1: <laughs> Spanish butchering. Uh, my, my
0: Spanish struggles a little bit, but this was his first assignment as a, as a uh, priest, uh, just a small farmhouse that he was commissioned to turn into. It was into. more
1: like a shack. <laughs> yeah. <that's, laughs> really? The
0: writings of it certainly indicate it was nothing much, but his charter was to turn that into a uh, monastery. Um, John, uh, we should emphasize this, uh, very early on, he began um, what ultimately became his ultimate ministry, and that was spiritual direction. And John uh, knew, uh, of course, with his schooling in uh, philosophy and theology, uh, but more importantly, John began to school himself on the workings of the human heart. Today, we would refer to John as a great psychologist. Of course, the terminology wasn't used back then. Uh, but John, as it turns out um, in his writings, revealed himself to be uh, a brilliant uh, uh, analyst of the human heart and the human mind. A spiritual architect. Yes, and he understood how these elements worked themselves into, both the good and the bad, how they worked into an individual person's Uh, uh, successes and failures in the spiritual walk. So
1: Teresa sees this in him, so guess what she does? She says, okay, we want you to have spiritual direction, responsibility for all those nuns at the Incarnation in Avila, and also, you know, will help them in their spiritual growth. So uh, this is a great time when they're together, and he learns a lot about Teresa and their way of thinking. Now, earlier you were talking about how they had some differences um, I think one of those was the view of uh, the austerities or the penances. And first, John was was rather strong, you know, very manly. It was uh, it was very predominant that men had lots of austerities at this time. Uh, those who were uh, aspiring into this, this this life of holiness. But now Teresa softens him up, so. Talk about that.
0: A she, she does soften him up on that regard. Uh, it took time, of course. John, when he left the uh, academic world, uh, contemplated for a time actually going off and becoming a Carthusian,
1: a which yeah, yeah,
0: which would be a, a step even further into the contemplative life and the life of silence that he so much desired. She um, dissuades him of that idea, of course, in large part by uh, telling him that she couldn't imagine that um, the Blessed Mother would want him to be leaving her order. So. Um, instead, he, she commissions him to participate with her in the reform. Um, but, but you're right. John had a much more uh, a positive view, if you will, of the practice uh, practices of austerity in uh, both regard to clothing and eating and sleeping and all of the, the things that we see in the Desert Fathers uh, literature with regard to those practices.
1: But he was, he was more into it than she was. And when she softened him up... He, he began to see how some would boast about their austerities. And, of course, that would be an attachment, right. and that would be keeping you from progressing in the spiritual life. So he could see where, you know, it's, it's not on what we accomplish, it's what God accomplishes through us, by us being open and receptive. So he really does uh, soften his stance on that.
0: And John writes about that later, where he explains, of course, we have an example, a wonderful example of it in Brother Lawrence, A Carmelite, who we will deal with later, but um, this idea that we can fall victim to our best intentions in the spiritual life. You know, people who adopt fast, and they say, well, one day a week would be great, but two would be better, and three would be better still. And we begin to be led down that path. And I'm not saying John fell victim to that, but it's clear that he modified his perspective somewhat on the idea of austerities. Teresa was concerned that her nuns not experienced the spiritual life as something that was uh, constantly, uh, uh, you know, difficult and, and, and challenging and, and uh, oppressive, if you will, and so she she modified uh, the tone of that to particular
1: and the uh, hardest, perspective. The hardest thing was to not do your own will. You know, that was that was the big thing: the detachment, uh, the humility, you know, the silence, the prayer. Those those were the big things. Not look at me. What did I do? You know, and he was very conscientious of people trying to build themselves up on, on on their accomplishments, and he saw that in the academic world, and that's kind of what turned him off there.
0: You're right. That's exactly what it was. The uh, idea that uh, people were uh, acquiring these titles and prestige, and you know what they wrote and so forth, was of so, so, such significance that John was somewhat turned away by that.
1: And of course, that got some of his companions on the journey in the Carmelite order a little upset with him.
0: It did. Uh, of course, John suffered by uh, uh, you know, members in, in the uh, ancient observance and then later within uh, the disgust uh, order itself uh, through a number of different trials. But his rock through all of that, of course, we can say, I think, chiefly, was Teresa. And one of the reasons for that is he had the good fortune, as did she, in 1572 we know from her own writings, Teresa actually entered the Seventh Mansion what she later characterized as the seventh mansion. And we won't go through the details of that. We've done that in a former program. But, But what's important is that John was her spiritual director at the time. Right. And this is where the sort of symbiotic nature of their relationship really manifests itself. At the same time that John is learning so much from Teresa about her experience, what you just credited her with, Teresa is saying that John... Is the spiritual director extraordinaire. In fact, she says that she's not found anyone uh, as uh, uh, helpful as him in all of Castile. Of course, the larger region where much of their work was done, Uh, and so the uh, the uh, combination of their uh, spiritual paths coming together at this stage in history was so significant for the history of the order
1: absolutely but there's trouble brewing trouble you want to get into the trouble
0: we'll talk a little bit about it we won't go into the political history we could but uh, (laughs) we don't have enough time for that but but here's what's interesting Uh, king philip of spain at the time um, actually had a responsibility if you will uh, for some of what was happening in the order within the country of spain somewhat (laughs) unique to the history that uh... Political or country leaders played a direct role in what was going on
1: right, in,
0: in in some of the uh, the uh, uh, influence in the in the political uh, dynamics playing out in the religious orders in their country.
1: Yeah, and and he wants it to be a Catholic country, and you know they're very devotional, and he wants them to grow in their spiritual life, and he wants to have a say in the matter. And this is also the period. I think 1571 was the Battle of Lepanto. Mm-hmm. So you know there's all that, and of course. We remember there was the Council of Trent, there was the Spanish Inquisition, there was uh, the uh, Luther, and the Counter-Reformation, and, and all these things were going on during these years.
0: So there's a lot of chaos, and we have discussed this in, in previous programs as well. Uh, chaos affects the Carmelite Order on a number of occasions throughout its history, yeah. and certainly in Europe as it began to integrate into the cities and so forth. John was pulling away from that. Teresa, of course, in the establishment of her various institutions is trying to give it some structure and a foothold, um, but interestingly, in 1575, there's a chapter of the order in Piacenza, Italy, and the order comes to some rather difficult, strong, in fact, decisions about what's going to happen in Spain, where there's all of this intrigue around this new Saint uh, Teresa of Avila and this person, John of the Cross, and, of course, others uh, father gratian who um, was working closely with teresa as well and at the same time as that particular uh, chapter of the order in 1575 the holy father gregory the 8 at the time declared an end to the dominican oversight of the order now the dominicans had been uh, overseers of the order for some years uh, because of the earlier chaos within the order the order quite frankly had sort of lost its way um, and, and through its integration into the major cities, the academic arena and so forth, in Europe, and the major cities in Europe, had begun to lose its contemplative spirit, its hermetic spirit, its hermetic spirit, the, yeah. the, the linkage had... to the order's history on Mount Carmel.
1: And they had to readapt.
0: And they had to change and, 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 and find their way again. Uh, and this is all of what's happening. Of course, again, I've... I've
1: uh, Simplified said, it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I,
0: but but I've said this so many times. I think the history of the order is so consistent with the history of the spiritual walk of any individual. Yeah, we could call it a dark night, women. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, they're going through a dark <laughs> night.
1: And carry your cross, right? take up your cross. That's John's motto, you know. <laughs> he, he summed up the gospel, take up your cross. <laughs>
0: well, John, interestingly, during this time, um, and, and again, without going into all the detail, John is viewed as somewhat of a a rebel and so he's arrested for a brief time in 1576 um, and is released later almost uh, uh, immediately uh, through the intervention of the papal nuncio or the the uh, ambassador if you will the pope's ambassador in the in the region and well, on his
1: on his behalf i have to say you know you got one side saying this is how you're supposed to follow the orders and then over here you have another group saying no you're supposed to take your orders from us yeah. and so and of course postal system being what it was in those days <laughs> wasn't very reliable yeah. you're going to have mass confusion and so there it was and so you know some people can legitimately argue one thing but they don't know the other side and then the other side can legitimately argue their side and
0: uh, of course John's perspective and we'll we'll quote him in a moment in this regard but John sees all of this again as the hand of god I working know. through the history of the order working through his own life uh, working through the reform Um, And and he views it in that context. He's reached a level of maturity in now his mid-30s, even at at that, I would say, relatively young age. He's reached a level of maturity and understanding of the way that God works that allows him to accept these challenges. And here's his next challenge. Um, Only a few um, uh, months, actually, just about a year later, the nuncio who had intervened uh, on John's behalf dies. Mm. And John is almost immediately arrested again. Uh, he's placed in a small, dark room, narrow, uh, just uh, uh, tall enough really for him to uh, be able to uh, get some stretching. But uh,
1: like not five much, by uh, eight, with a yeah, little bitty
0: yeah, very creak, small room.
1: Freak up a window. Uh, <laughs> uh,
0: nothing in the room for him but his bravery um, and uh, the, the clothes that he had on, which didn't change in the time that he was in there. Uh, he endures the uh, floggings and fasts on bread and water, and as I say, the clothing. Uh, was not changed and not washed. So he endures the lice and all the rest of the the trials that go on. I I just want to point out this is interesting because um, John joins the Carmelite order as a young man. He studies theology philosophy, joins the Carmelite order, uh, becomes a star really early on in the Reformation of the order, is identified for that in a negative way, and he's cast now, in his mid-thirties, he's cast into prison where he will spend about nine months in, in really very terrible conditions. Yeah. And you have to wonder what's going through John's mind. Right, Here I am trying to do the right thing, trying to live for God, trying to be the best person I can be, and these are the circumstances I find myself in. And the great lesson for us here is when you begin the spiritual walk, we can't labor under the misconception that all of a sudden the path of light and, and consolation is going to open to us. John says, in fact, in his writings, which we will cover, don't seek the consolations in your spiritual life. This experience for John turns out to be the most significant, the pivotal moment, really, in the history of his own development as a spiritual person, yes. and it is the time during which he wrote most of his best poetry.
1: Yeah, the spiritual canticle, and, and gets informed form, in his mind all these other writings, and it's just truly amazing how he takes this negative situation and turns it into positive, because he's thinking, well, I don't have to go and do all this administrative stuff. I've got time to pray. So he focuses on the prayer, and although he's suffering a lot, he understands the value of suffering. So that that's in his favor here.
0: And that's the lesson that John has to teach. And again, I said early on, so many of the saints teach us this lesson. And I want to, again, I want to uh, provide some uh, consolation, nonetheless, to our uh, listeners, our friends of Carmel, by saying if you're overwhelmed by the circumstances of your life today, if you think you just can't bear anymore the, the difficulty of your illness, the, the trial of unemployment, uh, the challenge of financial burdens, the, the legacy of, of a difficult childhood. Maybe some of our listeners grew up in very difficult uh, childhoods. John can relate to that.
1: Absolutely. John
0: lived through these experiences, but John teaches us, and we won't get into it this evening. I want to leave this out as sort of a, uh, uh, you know, a taste of what's to come yeah. in John and in the writings. If you want to learn how to take the most challenging aspects of your human experience and turn them into Love and become love through them. John of the Cross is one of the best teachers in the history of the Church for teaching you how to do that. He is the preeminent spiritual director for the very simple reason that John helps us take all of our trials and use them to literally become love itself.
1: And this leads into one of his most famous quotes, where there is no love, put love. Where where you find no love, put love. Put
0: love. Be that love. Yeah. Be that love yourself. It's an incredible challenge. And if, if if we are shying away, if people shy away from John, it's probably for that reason that he presents such an incredible challenge. But he also tells us how to get there.
1: So anyway, he, he does escape from that prison, and the nuns hide him. <laughs> Thank the Lord.
0: He does escape and um, uh, goes to a uh, hospital, actually, in Santa Cruz, and while there, in 1578, he's actually appointed the vicar of a monastery in El Calvario, which is in a remote mountain region in Spain, where they know he'll have some uh, security. Uh, things begin to settle down a little bit in the politics of the order. A, uh, a uh, Father Salazar is actually appointed uh, as uh, as the uh, uh, general of the order at that time for the I'm sorry for the region. Uh, and John is appointed as the rector of a Carmelite college in the town of Beza in Spain. Uh, and these years, and now about a decade, uh, John once again takes up his ministry, ministry as a spiritual director. And I want to quote here again St. Teresa talking about John and his skill as a spiritual director, and I do so largely in part because I'm hoping I'm encouraging, and we're cur- encouraging Francis, our listeners, to really begin to delve into John and to try to draw out the beauty of his writings and his teachings in this context of him as a spiritual director. Here's Saint Teresa. I am really, she's writing to one of her nuns in a uh, in one of the uh, convents who has not yet uh, really spent a lot of time with John, though she's met him. I'm really surprised, daughter, at your complaining so unreasonably. This is with regard to the poor spiritual direction available through much of the order. She says, When you have Father John of the Cross with you, who is a divine and a heavenly man, I can tell you, daughter, that since he went away, I have found no one like him in all of Castile, nor anyone who inspires people with so much fervor on the way to heaven. This is the person who is available to you, our friends of karma and our Mm -hmm. listeners. You would not believe how lonely his absence makes me feel. You should reflect that you have a great treasure in that holy man, and all those in the monastery should see him and open their souls to him, when they will see what great good they get and will find themselves to have made great progress in spirituality and perfection, for our Lord has for our Lord has given him a very special grace for this. Now, this is St. Teresa of Avila, who's already reached the seventh mansion, writing about the person who helped her get there, St. John of the Cross.
1: Absolutely. So she uh, definitely uh, saw, you know, how the Lord was working in him and the benefits he was bringing to all those nuns and the friars. And with him, uh, they go on and found several other monasteries and convents.
0: And, John, we, we'll cover quickly just the last few details because we wanted to give you a little taste of what's coming up both next week and the following weeks. Uh, John is eventually, in 1582, he's elected prior of a monastery uh, overlooking the lovely city city of Granada. In 1585 and then later in 1588, he's elected counselor to the vicar general for the Discalced order. Um, at this time, he really begins to stop all of his writing, his last work being The Living Flame of Love, And he says uh, about this that uh, he doesn't want to continue because writing specifically about the Holy Spirit working in his soul, he says, because I'm aware of being incapable of doing so. And were I to try, it might seem less than it really is. So John is telling us, I can't even write anymore because I can't explain to you how wonderful the experiences are that I'm having. And by the way, this is a man who still bears the... uh, the marks of the difficulty of the life that he led. Uh, Some of his experiences in the nine months of captivity remained with him.
1: Doesn't that remind you of St. Thomas Aquinas when he put down his pen and said, I can't write anymore, after he had that wonderful um, revelation?
0: Yeah. John began uh, finally in uh, 1591 to experience some medical problems. Um, yeah, and,
1: he got a fever, and didn't he have, like, gangrene in his leg in or his something? In leg, right. An ulcer or something like that, yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and he was asked to move to a, another monastery in Ubeda, and this is the, the last story and a great story. Uh, the prior there did not particularly uh, care for John, not that he personally disliked John of the Cross, he just didn't want the nooses of a sick friar that uh, he would have to take care of, Father uh, Francisco Christostomo. Uh, I'm probably saying that wrong, but um, it's my best effort at it. Um, And and the interesting story is that in the last few weeks of his life, uh, the prior comes to visit John, and John, rather than complaining about the difficult, and in fairness it was very difficult, treatment that he received there, uh, begs the forgiveness of the prior, who later is uh, witnessed walking out of the cell literally in tears uh, because he realizes uh, the sanctity of the person who he's now spent the last many uh, months mistreating. Uh, so John's ministry, a personal ministry, uh, continues right up to the very end.
1: And when he dies, he does get um, this last opportunity. I mean, he, he tells them, you know, he thinks he's coming to his end, and he says that he's going to sing Matins in Heaven. And sure enough, he dies around the midnight hour. All right. Um, and so December 14th is his feast day.
0: And the interesting thing about John, in those last literally hours of his life, a number of the priests in the monastery approach him and were saying, oh, this is so wonderful, you know, aren't you looking forward to what's going to happen? Look at all the wonderful things you've accomplished in your life, and your reward must be wonderful. And, of course, John's reaction is, this is not the time for that. He says, if I should be saved, it will only be by the blood of of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It will have nothing to do with what I've done in my life. He realizes yeah, so it's all been oh. a grace and it's all been a gift. Well, we hope we've given you a, uh, a, at least a brief introduction to the person and the life of St. John of the Cross. And we hope that you'll join us again next week when we really begin to uh, open up the writings of St. John to see him as a spiritual guide who has every bit as much applicability today, Francis, as he did in the time when he was writing.
1: Yes, we want to talk about that because he'll help us grow in the interior life. He'll teach us about the value of suffering, uh, the importance of detachment, give us guides for discernment, uh, how to be open and receptive to, to God and how God's working, and um, you know, uh, the more meat and potatoes of, of the spiritual life, you know, the, that school of suffering rather than this happy-go-lucky, feel-good sentimentality.
0: Well, please join us again next week, and let me close this out just quickly with a brief prayer of John. Let your divinity shine on my intellect by giving it divine knowledge and on our wills by imparting to them divine love and on our memories with a divine possession of glory. God bless you listeners. We thank you for joining us, and we look forward to being with you again next week on Carmelite Conversations with Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home.